Let's have a prayer and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much that we can be gathered here in a place where we are greeted by old friends, greeted by new friends, greeted by your spirit that calls us to worship you, to praise you, to study you, to know you, and to learn your ways in the world, ways that you designed for us to live by. Thank you for ancient stories that speak truth to today. Thank you for ancient people who were faithful as best they could be. We are inspired by them, and we want to be faithful as best we can be, to be inspired by you, to serve you, and to continue to work in the world for your purposes as part of your plan. We remember these things now as we invite you to be with us and as we open ourselves, as always, to your correcting, encouraging, inspiring word that comes to us in the scriptures. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I should also say, I forgot about this part, uh, there was an older teaching schedule that went out uh, that said that Jan Cook was going to be teaching today, uh, and, and she's not. So, uh, just, just want to let you know that. <laughs> Anyhow, Jan will be teaching the next two weeks, uh, so she will she will be back in that. We we published a schedule and then sat down with it and decided to do it a little bit, and that's where we are. Um, how many of you, in reading the passage for today, sort of felt like you were reading about modern history, not ancient history. Did any of you have that feeling? Yeah. This is, you know, I contend that everything that's in the scriptures is tied to today because it's all about human beings, it's all about God, and none of that has changed, uh, no matter how many thousands of years you go on. But this is one of those times when it just is so blatantly obvious, it just smacks you in the face. Uh, and this is one of those times. So we will uh, uh, look at what the ancient word says and, and maybe be able to draw some lessons for today. Let us start with um, the, first, um, the first section of this, uh, verse uh, 2 through 13 of chapter 6. And I'll read it and we'll chat a little bit about it. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant Say, therefore, to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, The Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? 
Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Okay, let's dive in for a little bit. There's lots of stuff going on, going on here, and every line really. Sometimes we read a story and, and it's just the, the point of the whole story, but this has in pretty much every line a lot going on. Um, we have already heard, we've already read the story about God coming to Moses and telling him to go to Pharaoh to let the people go, right? Why are we hearing it again? Why are we hearing it again? Because we forgot, yes. <laughs> That's one really good reason. Um, there's actually several different ways to understand why we're hearing it again. One of them that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but one of them has to do with the fact that uh, many scholars believe that there were several major traditions or several major streams of the oral stories told about Israel's history that were written down. And those major uh, pieces, those major streams of thought, tended to use different names for God. And uh, you will find different names for God throughout the Old Testament. But those scholars believe that when you have a particular name of God being used, that that's from one tradition, one stream of thought. And that eventually over time, all of those were put together to, uh, to make the one story of the Old Testament. Uh, it's called the source theory. There's the, the Yahwistic, the Elohistic, the priestly, uh, and the Deuteronomic traditions. Um, and that all makes a certain amount of sense. We have to remember that these stories were told before they were written down. Uh, and there were, just like with any story of history, uh, there was more than one way to tell the story. You can have two people observe the same events and ask them to write the story, and, and the story will be somewhat different. So that could be what's going on here, that the earlier story of Moses having a conversation and getting his call from God uh, was from one tradition. This story is from a different tradition. That makes some sense. However, there are other ways to look at this, and they don't necessarily contradict each other. But there are some new things that happen in this retelling of the story. And as it's retold, I think there is a continuation of the story itself in certain key aspects. And so we want to look at that. Notice that God says uh, to, uh, to Moses, I am the Lord. Now remember, when we read the Lord, or we hear the name God, or some of those things, we just think of the one God. But in Moses' time, everybody thought there were many gods. And the Israelites themselves, in some sense, had to be convinced of that fact over time. And so what God literally says here is, I am Yahweh. Remember, God came to Moses in the burning bush and said, my name is Yahweh, after Moses asked what God's name was. So anytime you read the Lord, it's really that Hebrew word Yahweh, a specific name, not just a generic name. We use the Lord kind of as a sort of a generic way of talking about God. God itself is in a sense generic, just God. But that name Yahweh is specific to this particular God. And in a period where, where a polytheism uh, is, is rampant, it's kind of the order of the day, knowing the name of your God was very, very important. Now, that's lifted up here, that, that fact of God being revealed as Yahweh, which is, you know, we've translated that as I am that I am, I will be who I will be, I am, all of that conversation. Um, God says, I revealed myself 
to you as the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I'm the same God that's been talking to you all along, Moses. But when I talked with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, I gave them the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. Right? That's the Hebrew word El Shaddai. So right there you have two different names of God and maybe two different traditions being put together. But there's something else going on here, even if it was two different traditions being put together. What God seems to be saying to Moses is that to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the, to the patriarchs way back when, God revealed something about who he was with the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. I am the strong God. The powerful God. Now that still leaves open the possibility that there could be other gods, right? Gods who are weaker than El Shaddai. But when God reveals himself to Moses, God begins to eliminate the possibility that there are even other gods. God says, I am Yahweh. I am the one who actually is existence itself. All existence, all creation, everything that is, is because I is. Does that make sense? Okay. So in a sense, God is revealing more of himself to Moses than he has to Abraham and the, and the other patriarchs. And in that way, God is reassuring Moses of who he is. And he's not just a really, really strong God fighting among other gods, he is the only God. He is the real God. I happen to think that, that this conversation did happen, and it was a subsequent conversation. God didn't just come to Moses once and say, go do this. I think Moses went back to God continuously and said, God, is this really you? Are you sure this is what you want to do? Think about that. When you or I start a huge project, something big, something hairy, something that's going to take a while, we don't think about why we're doing it just once and then go off and do it. We come back continually. And especially if someone has given us a job to do, right? We don't just go off and do it. We come back to them continually. Moses comes back to God after the initial interchange with Pharaoh. We talked about that last week. Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, Pharaoh, God says, let the people go for three days to go out and worship in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, ain't no way. And by the way, I'm going to make it harder for the slaves than before. And so everybody's upset, including Moses. Moses comes back to God. And I think, you know, a lot of this conversation we don't have written down. So this is kind of filling in the backstory. I don't think the way it started was Moses came back to God and said, God, that didn't work. <laughs> What's up with that? Right? It didn't work. It backfired. You said you were going to deliver us from slavery and get us out for three days, and, and now it's just harder than it was. So you have a plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. God's plan A is going to work out. <laughs> and so God reassures Moses by telling him, I really am the one true, real God. Okay? God also says, I'm the one who's been with you all this time. I, I'm El Shaddai. I'm, I'm the God that, that your great, 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 many, many great grandfather Abraham knew. And then all the way down the line, I established a covenant. This is the gospel in a sense. This is God saying, 
I came to be your God, to rescue you, to save you, to redeem you. I established my covenant with you to give them the land of Canaan. Now, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, and I'm going to bring us back pretty quickly because this is a, this is a big question. But this is one of the many places in the Old Testament where we hear God's promise to give to the Hebrew people, to give to the Israelites, to give to the Jews their homeland. Is that still a question today? Is that still an issue today? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, there's a lot of conversation that we have, and this is related to one of the questions that I have at the end of your lesson today. There's a lot of conversation to be had about whether God actually intended for the Jews to live in that place for time immemorial. There's certainly plenty of language in the Old Testament especially uh, that says simply that. And today there are people in, in Israel who believe, I, I visited the Son of Man, uh, who believe that God gave them this land, it's their land, everybody else needs to get out. And that Israel is justified in using whatever means it deems necessary to force everybody out of their land because it's their land that God gave to them. And, and certainly there's plenty of language in the Old Testament that would take you there. And there are many Christians in the West uh, who will say, no, the, Israel is the Jews' homeland. It says right here in the Bible. Um, what's interesting in this conversation is, is that the New Testament is often excluded from the equation. And in the New Testament, we hear Jesus and the early church beginning to talk about the fact that the, the homeland that God gives to us and the people whom God is creating is not about just one group of people in one place geographically located in Israel, but it is about all people in all places, and it's not geographic, it is spiritual. The church considers itself to be, and this is this is good, this is just Christian theology. Presbyterians, Catholics, even Baptists would agree with us here. <laughs> that the church is the new Israel and it transcends geographic issues, it transcends racial, ethnic political gender. It transcends every single form of division that might exist in the human world. And so we Christians must be very careful when we say God gave this homeland to the Jews. Yes, that's an Old Testament way of looking at that, and that was, that was uh, part of the way the story unfolded, but God had more to say about it. This is a Christian now speaking. This doesn't, this doesn't, in no way, shape, or form does this say that the Jews should not have a homeland. I think everybody should have a homeland. The problem with it is that nobody knows who owns the homeland, really. Uh, who, who really owns the land that we're on? You know who owns the land that we're on? If you say it's the first people who were here, uh, then, then there's only a handful of us that have Indian blood running through our veins that can say this is our homeland. Everybody else should get off, right? So there's a problem there, right? It's all God's land, and God is not so much interested in the land question as God is interested in this earth as our home for all of us and we need to get along in. That's the vision that the church began to see with Jesus. And so all of this conversation about homeland has to be transposed into a new key 
as we look at what Jesus did and as we look at what the church is. Does that make sense to you? But it's still a very real question. It's still a very vital question. And again, I'm not suggesting that there should not be a Jewish homeland. I believe that there should be. Um, but, but having a homeland doesn't answer all your problems, does it? That's another question. Let's continue on, though. So God has heard what's going on. And God says uh, to Moses, I really, really, really am God. I've even told you more about who I am so that you are going to be even stronger as you continue your conversation. And now I want you to go uh, to, uh, to Pharaoh again and, and say to him, right? Say to him that I want the people to be released. I want the people to be let go. Now, Moses has also complained to God, not only has Pharaoh resisted, but the, the people themselves have resisted God's plan. God comes to them and says, I'm going to lead you out of, out of slavery. That's what Moses says God has said to the people. And the people have said, that isn't going to happen. In fact, Moses, you just messed things up for us. Go away. Right? Verse 9 is very, very important here. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. We need to dwell with that phrase for a little while because, in a sense, you and I have grown up in a context, most of us, I think, in a context where it's very difficult to understand what that is actually saying. Did the Israelites say to Moses, Moses, we don't want to be free? That's not what they said. They said to Moses, you've made everything harder for us. And then we have this, this little phrase that they could not and did not respond to Moses because of their broken spirits and their cruel slavery. You and I, for the most part, have grown up in a land of freedom, in a land of prosperity, in, in a context where pretty much everything was sort of handed to us on a silver platter and we were, we were told we could take it. And we've done that, okay? That's who most of us are in this room, especially compared to other groups of people. But Israel has had a very, very different experience. Let me try to describe this by bringing it down to the, to the personal level, okay? Talking about one person. Uh, the more I study the scripture, the more I see that the things that happen in in huge groups of people over long periods of history are also things that happen in us individually and in our, in our interpersonal relationships. Let's say that you were a child born into a family where mom and dad and brothers and sisters and all the other adult people told you that you were ugly, that you were stupid, that you were worthless, that you would never amount to anything. Let's say you grew up in a family where you were locked up in a room for most of your life. Let's say you grew up in a family uh, where you were physically beaten, okay? If that had happened to you, and I, I, will, I will say right now, maybe there is someone in this room who grew up that way. Uh, but if that happened to you, we know that, that what happens is that a person's spirit is broken, and they grow up believing they are what they were told they were. They believe they're worthless, they're powerless, they're unwanted, they're junk, they're nothing. 
If you walk into that person in that kind of a context and say, I think you should run for president of the United States, that person would not begin to understand what you were talking about. When a group of people are enslaved, their spirits are broken. They begin to believe the lie that has been told them by their oppressors. Even if they believe differently, they understand that they have nothing to fight with. Nothing. Think about it. Moses walks up to some of the Israelite leaders and says, Hi, you know, I'm one of you guys. Yeah, I know I grew up in Pharaoh's household and then I left for a long time, but I'm back now. What's up with that, right? And God says, we can be free and I'm going to lead you out. The, the, the leaders of the Hebrew people would say, Moses, you're out of your mind. We have no weapons. We have no food except for what Pharaoh gives us. We don't have a way to communicate with each other. We have nothing to fight with. At the very least, because of the people's slavery, they know they have nothing to fight with. And so we can see why the people did not believe Moses' message from God. They didn't believe it about themselves. They didn't have the inner spiritual wherewithal. The, we would call it the self-confidence, perhaps. Plus, looking at the nature of their situation, they didn't have anything to fight with, did they? They had nothing. And so Moses' plan, God's plan, was really crazy. It was absolutely, completely off-the-wall wrong-headed. That's, that's the reality of things. And we need to get in touch with that, right? We look at the end of the story and say, oh, great, God's come to rescue the Israelites, let's go. No, that's not the way it felt to the people. That's really not even the way it felt to Moses. Moses resisted God's plan all the way along, said, I can't even talk right. I can't speak well. How am I going to convince Pharaoh to do something that Pharaoh's not going to want to do. And so Pharaoh has uh, intensified his uh, oppression, and God has repeated his claims about these people being his people. And then, just like Pharaoh escalated the conflict, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people go three days. Pharaoh says, no, and not only no, but I'm going to make it even harder for the people, making them get their own straw. Moses comes back and says, God, this is what's gone on. And God says, okay, we're going to up the ante, right? That's why I believe this is a second conversation. There's an escalating war. There's escalating tension. It gets worse before it gets better. And that's the way it always is in warfare, right? So Moses, uh, God says to Moses, Moses, go back to Pharaoh, and I'm not going to ask anymore for just three days. I'm going to say, Pharaoh, you will let the people go, period, from your land. They're gone, okay? So the stakes of the battle are, are increased now. And in a way, that's meant to prove to us just how incredible God is, that it's going to, you know, maybe if God had gotten the people a three-day vacation, okay, that's great, God, thank you very much. Now they go back to slavery. That was cool, but so what? Now it's, no, we're going we're gonna to go all the way. We're going to do the whole thing here. So that's what's going on in this conversation. You see how it escalates, and you see how real it is. 
Lots of people will say, I can't believe the Bible's too full of, of, you know, miracles and unreal stories. But really, there's way more in the Bible that's just very real about the way human relationships are, about the way human beings are, about the way our relationships are with each other, even, even kind of on the international scale, the relationships between nations. This is the way things go. And there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Let's keep on reading. Chapter 6, verses 14 through 26. The following are the heads of their ancestral houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. Let me stop there. How many of you would like for me to read the rest of the genealogies? <laughs> Nobody wants to hear the genealogies. I'm not going to do that. Um, not because I'm afraid of of mispronouncing the names. You don't know whether I've mispronounced them or not, <laughs> and neither do I. <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> but we don't need to read all those names. Here's the question. <clears throat> Why is this genealogy inserted in the story at this point? What has that got to do with anything? Do you have some ideas about why that would be? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. That is one of the of several valid answers to this. This is this gives us the lineage by which the Levitical tribe is given the job of being the priest uh, for the people of Israel, right? Uh, and the priesthood, of course. Uh, becomes extremely important. Without the priesthood, you don't have the establishment of the temple, the establishment of worship, the establishment of teaching, the history of the faith, all that stuff. That is very much part of this. Okay? There are some other reasons in this that I think are there. Laura? They need to know who they are, right? Again, I, I, I hope this helps you. It helps me anyway, so I don't care if it helps you or not, but it helps me, you know... <laughs> It helps me to put myself back into what Moses was actually thinking and going on with Moses. Moses is terrified. He's, he's taken a risk now, and he's way out on this limb, and he's come back to God. And I think God is reassuring him in lots of different ways that it's going to be okay. And one of the ways that God reassures Moses is to say, Moses, remember who you are. Remember the story of which you are a part. I came to great-great-great-great-granddaddy Abe a long, long time ago, and I've been with you ever since. This is your family. This is your people. I've never forsaken you forever. I know you've been in slavery for a while. There's some reasons for that, perhaps. But I'm, I, I have never left you, and now I'm going to do something amazing for you. It's a way of reassuring Moses by knowing who he is and the long tradition that he comes from. And I think in a couple of ways, it gives Moses a new sense of inspiration, if you will. And by extension, then, not just Moses, but all of the people, right? All of the Hebrew slaves are related to this same group of folks, and they could pronounce the names, by the way. Uh, they're related. 
And, and for all the people, knowing that history gives them a couple of things. Number one, I think it gives them the courage to know that whatever's happening with them is only part of a much bigger story. Okay? Moses' life, as important as it is, is still only part of the story. That generation of Israelites is only part of the story. The story started a long time ago. It has continued, and God is going to continue the story. That gives you courage to do something, doesn't it? How many of you, I, I hope at least a few of you, have learned to become unselfish enough that you are doing some things for generations that are going to come after you that will have no direct benefit to you whatsoever. In fact, it'd be more fun to spend the inheritance yourself. Right? Yes, I've got one enthusiastic agreer here. That's who <laughs> Right? God is calling Moses to risk something, to give up something for the sake of all those generations past and for the sake of all the generations to come in the future. That's going to give Moses courage. That's going to call him outside of himself to be part of his community, part of his people. We know, we hear the stories over and over and over again, that when people uh, leave where they have been to come to what they hope is a better place, they will always say, and I would bet that there are some of your relatives who have said this. And I'm certain you know some people who are saying this today. We always say, I have left behind what was to come to something better for myself. And I want it to be even better for my children and their children after them. That's what's going on here. That's why the genealogy is important. And that also then brings forth a certain kind of courage from, from Moses, right? We use that tactic all the time when we try to encourage people to do things selflessly or things that they're not necessarily going to see the end result of, but, but we call people to participate in moving things forward just a little bit, don't we? So the genealogies, yes, they're impossible to read, they're incredibly boring, but they're vitally, vitally important. God is, God's work, God's presence is grounded in real history. It's not just some mystical thing out there. It's not just some little spiritual thing between God and me. It's a much bigger thing that involves ultimately all of us in all of human history. So that's what the genealogies tell us. God is working. God's timing is working itself out. Moses and Aaron are part of this plan, right? Moses and Aaron are part of this plan. Let's keep going, and then we'll take comments and questions and things. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 28 and on. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, since I am a poor speaker, why would Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, 
I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the uh, Israelites, company by company, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, let's work through this backwards. How old is too old to be the leader? <laughs> Do not answer that question. I'm just going to leave it sitting there, okay? <laughs> you think the Bible doesn't talk about today? Wow. Moses continues to object. God, I'm not a good speaker. What's going to go on here? And God says something fascinating. He says, Moses, you're going to be like God to Pharaoh. This is one of the few times that God says specifically in scriptures, you're going to be like God. And Aaron is going to be your prophet, like a prophet, okay? Not only is Moses going to speak for God, that's kind of the way God talked in the initial call. Moses, here's my message, go give it to Pharaoh. Now it's Moses, you are going to be like God. In a sense, it's God saying, Moses, I'm giving you even more power. My power is going to work through you in such a way that it's going to be like I myself am working through you, with you, in this conflict that now is coming with Pharaoh. Aaron's job is elevated. Aaron is not just the press secretary to Moses anymore. He's the prophet. Now, a prophet is a really, really important role. A prophet speaks the words that are God's words. And so Aaron's role is elevated, right? Again, the stakes are, are raised. It's going to be God and God's prophet now in the persons of Moses and Aaron who are in this conflict with Pharaoh. Now, several things are going to happen then in this story. Even the Egyptians are going to learn who God is, right? Who is God to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Well, they've never heard of this God. They've never heard the name of this God. Now they've heard his name, and their initial thought is, fine, you have your gods, I have mine. My gods are stronger than your gods. I'm the one that's in charge here. You're not. You're a slave. Well, that story's going to change very quickly, and the Egyptians are going to come to know God. Now, we can take that one of two ways. Either it's going to be, yeah, yeah, I told you so, kind of, you're going to know who God is. Or it's going to be, finally, the Egyptians say, oh my, now we know who the real God is. It's very possible that some Egyptians, even back then, began to open their hearts to who the real God was. Wouldn't you do that? It's very interesting. Very, very interesting conversation. There's no comment given about that, but the Egyptians are going to know. God's promise of a land, of a home, of a place where the people can grow into a full nation is going to be fulfilled. One of the most commonly asked questions that I've ever received as a pastor in 600 years of being a pastor now is verse 3 of chapter 7, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There are 62 books to be written about that phrase <laughs> because so many questions are involved in that one phrase. 
Is Pharaoh a puppet in God's hands and God makes Pharaoh say whatever he wants him to say and do whatever he wants to do? There's a piece of that phrase that would made you think so. God is the one who made Pharaoh so obstinate, so obtuse, so so self-centered, so wrapped up in his own power, so egomaniacal that Pharaoh didn't have a choice but to do what Pharaoh did. Is that what was going on? In a sense, it seems that way, doesn't it? That, that God allows Pharaoh to become even worse, even harder to deal with, even more obstinate. And we, we kind of say, well, God must have let that happen. And in a way, that's true. God did let that happen. But on the other hand, we have to say, no, God just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. God let Pharaoh be who he was. Again, we have to get back into who Pharaoh was. And I know that, you know, as Christians, or as Jews, of course, uh, Pharaoh's the bad guy here, right? No question, Pharaoh's the bad guy. But we have to understand who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was just being who he was. And in a sense, he didn't have any choice but to be who he was. Who was Pharaoh? He was the head of a large prosperous, rich nation. His job was to keep it that way. The stupidest thing Pharaoh could have done was to try to keep, to, was, was to let the slaves go, right? That would, have been, that would have been economic, political, military suicide for Pharaoh. Pharaoh did exactly what he should have done, and what he did was completely defensible and understandable because the Hebrew slaves had zero power. There was no way in God's green earth that they were going to get what they asked for. They couldn't do it. Pharaoh knew that. All the Egyptians knew that. And the Hebrews knew that too, which is why they rebelled against the idea to begin with. The only one who knew that things might end up differently is God. Okay? So when we say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, we are, we are stating something that, that takes us to that issue of theological paradox. I've spoken of this here before, and, and we always have to come back to it and understand it. In, in the Bible, in our understanding of God, we often need to say something that is true over here, but then we also can say something that's true over here, and the two things seem to contradict each other. Did God make Pharaoh do what Pharaoh did, or did Pharaoh choose to do what Pharaoh did? If you accept the idea that theological paradox is okay, then the answer to the question is yes. Both things are true. And in saying both of those things, we highlight different aspects of our nature, of God's nature, of the way that history plays itself out, that we do not completely understand, but we observe it, right? And, and that's true of all, of all of human life, you know. Do you observe things? Do you see things? Do you hear things that you don't completely understand? Well, of course, every day, right? Every day. So it shouldn't surprise us that in observing human life and observing God and interacting with God and having a relationship with God and with each other, there are things that we don't understand that contradict each other but that are still true. And so somewhere in the middle of all of this, 
We have the truth, but it's a truth that only God fully comprehends. Does God dictate what history is going to be? Yes, God's God. He gets to make it happen the way he wants to. But on the other hand, God gave us free will and said, you make a choice. You do what you're going to do. God contended with Moses all the way along. Moses kept resisting God's plan, saying, I can't do it. This can't happen. You're crazy, God. At any point in time, Moses could have simply said, I'm out. End of story. Moses chose not to. So those two things are true. With Pharaoh, at any point in time, this would have been interesting if Pharaoh had said, you know what? I really need to keep this workforce here. And so I'm going to give them some concessions. I'm going to give them back the straw. I'm going to give them a little bit more to eat. I'm going to give them a little bit better housing. I'm going to make it more comfortable for them. And that will make it so that the people don't listen to Moses. They just say, you know, it's good enough. We're fine. And just keep it there. That would have been Pharaoh's best choice, we, we say, from the benefit of hindsight. But... If Pharaoh had done that, there would have been no exodus, no creation of the history and the nation of Israel, no story of salvation. And so on that side of it, we say that God allowed this horrible situation to exist and this terrible war to start that will end up with the firstborn sons of Egypt being killed. It's not news that babies get killed in war, but that's going to happen so that a bigger plan will unfold. That's what's going on here. So, Pharaoh, in a sense, is being controlled by God, but Pharaoh's controlled by history. Pharaoh's controlled by who he is and the situation into which he was born. At any point in time, he could have opted out of it, but he didn't. Pharaoh also had free will. So, let me stop there. Let me stop there. What thoughts, what questions, what issues are there in your heads with all of this? And God won't hear them, neither will I, unless you talk into Terry's microphone. Raise a hand if you want to say something about it. Yes, to Vicki down. Oh, wait, we can go to Penny first, and then we'll come to Vicki. Except you're going to go to Vicki first. See, Terry exercised free will right there. I said you're going to, you know. So this is maybe a totally irrelevant question, but I find it so distracting as I read this. Aaron's older. He's 83. Moses uh -huh. is 80. That always... In the cultural time, from what I've learned in Bible studies, the oldest son is like a big thing. Is there any reference or understanding that you can, or insight you can provide on Aaron was older, but Moses had all this directive from God that mm -hmm. just seems counterintuitive from so much of the scripture of that whole genealogy thing. Firstborn right. son, firstborn. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, good, good point, good point. Uh, generally speaking, in culture and human society, the older has more authority, more power, all of that. And yet in the scriptures, God is always reversing that order. Last year, when we looked at the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Esau is born first, right? So he's the one that should get the birthright. But Jacob steals it from Esau, and God continues to work with that. God often reverses the order of the way we think things should happen. Um, and, and so here again, that order is reversed. Aaron is not the chosen one, even though he's the older. It's Moses whom God chooses. God often chooses that which seems the least likely to work, and then he makes it work. God chooses a poor nobody Jewish carpenter from a scuzzy little town out in the hills. So mentioning their ages, there was a 
Well, in some sense, yes, yes. It also, mentioning their ages uh, tells us God is working with the younger brother, not the older brother. It tells us, uh, it, it locates things in a very specific history right? A lot of people believe that religion is just a kind of this mystical woo-woo thing of this little, you know, nice fuzzy warmness between God and me. I almost said me and God, and, and my ninth grade uh, teacher, would just, she would shoot me down. Her spirit would come back, and poof, I'd be gone. Um, but, but no, religion and God is right here in the real world in real time and real life. The genealogies ground us in real history, their ages ground us in real history at, at real times, okay? It also is telling us, I mean, by this time, those guys are pretty old, right? It's fascinating. God can use old, decrepit people to do his thing, right? There's hope for us. Who did you mean by us? It's uh, okay, right? Right? So all of those things are going on there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now to Penny. Okay. I'm. I'm curious. Um, there must have been a relationship between the the Egyptians and the the slaves. I mean, these slaves did the ladies' hair. I'm sure they they made their clothing. They, you know, I'm just thinking from a woman's standpoint, this is going to be a big loss. Yeah. Absolutely. Huge. I mean, was there any? I didn't see any writing where uh, Pharaoh had anybody coming and saying, you know, we really can't let these people go because yeah. We, we need them so desperately. Yeah. It would be fascinating to know more of the history, more of the detail of yeah, how like things Who cooked the food? Down. Who raised, you know, I mean, yeah, Egypt that's, that's must exactly have done right. terrible yeah. after everybody This is left. taking out a whole class of people that make society work, right? Right. I mean, this makes me, what, what was that movie 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, you know, A Day Without a Mexican in Southern California? <laughs> who's who's going to do the real work? <laughs> so yeah, there's all that going on. The big, it's the big story that we concentrate on. Through these people, God is going to demonstrate who he is to the rest of the world so that everybody can join the family and learn how to live the way that we're meant to live with each other. And, and that story is threatened. That's one of the big stories that repeats in Scripture continuously. God's plan is always imperiled. Now it's imperiled by the fact that these people can't become a nation because they're slaves in Egypt. God has to get them out. This is a cosmic battle. This is, this is not just about the Hebrew slaves being released. It's about God's plan being realized and, and accomplished. And so there's a cosmic battle between God and evil going on here. There's lots of stuff that filters out of that that were never shared with us because we're focused on just that biggest story. But good questions. Yes. Do you think Moses and Pharaoh knew each other personally? Because Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's household, and I, I'm assuming you become Pharaoh because your dad was Pharaoh. Yes, yes. And yeah, very so, much a family business. So, you know, he may have even grown up in the household of the Pharaoh, which would make it even harder for the mm -hmm. Pharaoh to say, well, I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah, very possibly, very possibly. Now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, that Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston did know each other. They grew up with each other, right? I mean, that's the way that story is told. 
And, and very likely that's what it was. Yeah, Moses is an interesting character, right? You know, he's born to a Hebrew family, but then he's given up by his mother because she's worried about his future. And Moses is taking him into Pharaoh's household. Moses, in a way, is the ideal person to fight Pharaoh because he knows everything about the inner workings of the whole system, including the people, which makes it an even more poignant human story, if you will, this battle between these two, who in a sense were raised as brothers. Now, I, I have to be really careful here because Cecil B. DeMille can get into my head rather than scriptures, right? But, the, but, but Cecil did a pretty good job of fleshing out a lot of the things here, uh, like Penny, like you were just talking about, right? The real stuff that's going on in that. Yeah. Yes, Cheryl, let's get the microphone on you. With that in mind, with uh, Moses growing up as an Egyptian, God told him the lineage to re-educate him to know where he came from. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, Moses, you're a Hebrew, you're not an Egyptian. Yeah, so he goes on through all that lineage to kind of help him find out who he really is Mm -hmm. as a Hebrew, Mm -hmm. where he did not have all of that. Yeah. Think about the conflict in Moses. I mean, he's grown up with these people. You know, his mom, as far as he knew, you know, the mother he grew up with, the woman who was mother to him, was an Egyptian. Yeah. So this should teach us (laughs) that life, theology, politics, history is way more complicated than most of us will will admit. And and God wins. But in the midst of that complication, there is nothing that is purely cut and dried, simplistic, black and white. There's always complication, which doesn't excuse our bad behavior, but, but it does explain why life can be so tough. Yeah. Yes, Dana. Um, did we know that the, the, the Pharaoh at that time was actually the, the, the father of um, Moses' adoptive mother because there was a there was a big period of time between when he was floating around on the Nile and when he well 80 80 something years later right I we I don't think we do know and this is where I think Cecil maybe took a little bit of poetic license um be fascinating visit with him someday won't it um I think there's some poetic license in the movie because nothing that I recall in the story as we have it in Exodus tells us that this Pharaoh is the same Pharaoh that that Moses grew up with, right? It's logical to presume that. And and it is entertaining to presume that, sure. He might not have been. Yeah, the the Pharaoh who was the father of the daughter who took Moses from the river, from the Nile. Um, that Pharaoh, could it could be the same Pharaoh, could be a different Pharaoh. I should research that a little bit more. Yeah. Anyway, so it would have been a brother or a cousin or somebody. Well, yeah, certainly it would be the son of that Pharaoh, right? Or the, the closest male heir of that Pharaoh. Yeah. And then yeah. also, oh. also um, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh that Moses was speaking to, mm-hmm. to God, um, Um, yes, my mind never goes blank. <laughs> uh, mine most of the time does. Um, While you're thinking of it, let's take the okay. mic back to Adrian in the back, and that'll be with our time. That'll be our last comment. So, Adrian, make this really good. 
<laughs> I don't know how short this will be because okay. it's a complicated question, but having all of this as background, mm -hmm. how do we view what's happening in Israel now? Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have time for that today. Okay, uh, Terry, let's call in some pizza for lunch and supper. <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh -huh. Cecil Biedemil's grandson, who I just met not too long ago, lives here in Del Mar and is writing his biography. Really? Yeah. Oh, we yeah. should get him here. Absolutely, Wouldn't yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes, oh, it that would, would be. that would be way fun, yeah. yeah. Let me, what's that? Oh, that could be, yeah, as we talk about the Middle Eastern stuff. We'll see if he's interested. It, it's, let me say just a couple things to, to start to answer your question, because it, it, is, it, it is, in a sense, the most important question, because it's the question of today, not way back then. Um, number one, these are not necessarily in order of importance, um, but I, I think this is number one. God has a plan. God's still in charge. God is God of everyone, Okay. Um, the Egyptians had a way of understanding God or the gods that we would say was not as fully formed as our understanding, but they did have an understanding, okay? Everyone has an understanding of God, even if they believe there is no God. That is their understanding of God. Um, we believe that God loves his creation, that God loves his people. Who are God's people? All people are God's people, okay? Uh, so that's one thing we must hold on to always. Something else we need to hold on to. And this is often part of the conversation that happens within the, the Jewish worldwide community. And that is that the Jews of all people do understand what it means to be enslaved and oppressed and, uh, and to have their existence, their very existence threatened. Okay? Therefore, some will say in, the, in the, the Hebrew community, the Jewish community, that Israel should be the most understanding when it comes to the kinds of issues that exist today uh, in relationship to Palestine, to Israel, all of that stuff that's going on. Um, and so that's something we have to hold very close, uh, which is why I encourage us, even as we categorically, unequivocally condemn the wanton murder of innocent people, yes, that fact that that has happened should lead us to study even more and learn even more about the context in which something like that does happen. And that should take us into a consideration of two million people living in worse poverty than people in Haiti. Uh, and half of those people, um, I'm not sure, a, a huge percentage have been born into, uh, into the Gaza Strip and never left the Gaza Strip. They don't have that option. It's, it's terrible, deplorable conditions in the Gaza Strip for a lot of God's people, okay? Um, so I want to say that. I think we look for inspiration as to how we are supposed to deal with everything that's going on there from some of those fundamental truths. Uh, we're never told that God hated the Egyptians. God gave Pharaoh every possible option for getting out of the situation before 
finally the firstborn children were killed. Uh, that's another conversation at another time, how it is that terrible evil happens even in the name of God. Um, and, and we always have to look at all of these stories in this history, not just for what they are in and of themselves, but we have to look at it from the perspective of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, and Jesus took things to a whole new level in how he encouraged justice for everyone, how he included everyone, how he taught us how to forgive each other, how to transcend our prejudice, our bigotry, our hatred, our fear, our anger, and move to a different way of being. And I think those things have to inform the way that we answer any questions. And right now, we're in, of course, uh, the worst scenario that we've seen in the Middle East for a very long time. Um, and, and it's terrifying what might happen. Let's understand that. Um, with that said, I think that Jesus gave us the tools to deal with it. But we so often choose not to use them. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, we could go a lot further, but let's hold on to those things. Okay, so I'm going to have an uprising and a revolt from among the masses of people if we don't stop. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for being God. Thank you for loving your children. Help us to learn how to be your children so that one day all people will bow down and call you blessed and all people will be part of the happy family that you mean for us to be. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Go eat some more.